That was uh, an emergency tuck-in at 7 o'clock. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, uh, welcome back to Endurance Innovation. It's uh, Andrew and myself joining you today for uh, a bit of a, and I've been thinking about, uh, and we've, uh, we did this a little while ago. We, we introduced a new format that we didn't really follow up on, but the, uh, the compression shorts uh, was, the, was the name that we gave it. And it's basically a, an episode where we have a few things that are interesting and noteworthy and stuff we've been thinking about, but aren't in of themselves worthy of an episode like there's just not enough there at least at this point um for us to devote a full episode to yeah it's just the quick uh you know the ten thousand meter overview of what's going on and and what we want to to talk about um so i guess if we have a couple compression shorts together that's kind of like a drawer um so uh yeah okay how much how how badly can we torture this metaphor andrew maybe that's uh, that's the uh, title of another show or the subject of another show oh yeah <laughs> Anyway, so I think uh, a great place to start was with uh, a listener question, and um, this listener is actually one of our supporting uh, members, which we're very grateful for, um, Michael Lynn. All right. And he's asked questions before, uh, and uh, he may be uh, a guest if he agrees to come on the show at some point in time to talk about running shoes, because that's, that's really his... Uh, his interest, uh, he actually writes a blog, um, which we'll link to, and uh, it's it's quite well read. And he posed uh, kind of an, intersec- an intersectional question of uh, running shoes and aerodynamics, which is always, uh, of course, a topic of, uh, of interest for Andrew and myself. Yeah, it's a new perspective of things. Um, it's not something that typically goes together, but um, I was kind of, when I first heard the question, I was kind of thinking, Oh, um, you know, it could be interesting. We'll see how how good it is. But then when I got into the numbers, it was actually feasible that uh, that the question could have a big impact. Right. So what I'm going to do is I will actually read the question as um, as Michael posted it because uh, just to do him justice. When Nike introduced the Vaporfly and the Breaking Two project, the long midsole tail was a novel feature. Nike touted it as aerodynamically superior, and it certainly matches our mental model of slippery, long, pointy teardrop attached flow shapes. Moreover, the Vaporfly Elite, worn by Kipchoge and other pros, featured a much more pronounced tail than the consumer 4% version. The subsequent Next% percent and Alphafly also have big tails. While I appreciate that the movement of the foot through the air is a complex motion that needs to factor in both forward motion and the gait cycle, I'm wondering if there's any validity to Nike's aero claims. And then Mike asks us to uh, use the CFD re- resources that Andrew has available to analyze whether or not this there was any aerodynamic benefit to that teardrop tail of the, the Nike top and shoes. So while we didn't go quite that far, um, Andrew did do, did do some aerodynamic analysis and uh, has, a, has an interesting conclusion to make. Yeah, so this is actually the way I would typically approach an engineering problem where you start off with hand calculations and just see kind of, does this make sense? Is this the right order of magnitude? Um, because you can whip off these calculations pretty quickly um, if you know the, the basic format and how to approach it. But uh, something like CFD takes a lot longer. So if you if you end up doing a full CFD analysis that takes eight hours to set up, 
and you find out it makes 0.05 watts difference, then that's kind of a waste of time. Um, but what I wanted to do was capture some of the, the realistic approach that we'd have with, uh, with how you actually run. And in Michael's question, there's, um, there, there were some interesting points brought up about how the complexity of the foot uh, and the movement through the air would be a big impact on things. So what I did in this is I took uh, the basis for the calculation is the standard force, um, so aerodynamic drag or aerodynamic force equation. So that's um, the general form is half times the density of air times the velocity squared times the CD value times the cross-sectional area. Um, so saying that out loud, it's, it's pretty complicated, but when you see, when you see it written down, it's, um, it's a little bit more familiar. It's the, the classic equation that people are used to seeing. So the CDA value is typically what we talk about with cyclists. And that was something that, um, I needed to answer as well as the, the velocity, uh, that the foot was traveling at. So the, the first assumption, the first big assumption that I made was, okay, half of your stroke um, you, you should be stationary with respect to the ground. So if there's no external wind, your shoe is not moving relative to that wind. It's just, it's on the ground. It's using, or it's being used to drive you forward, but it's not contributing to drag at that point. When your body is moving, um, moving forward at a constant velocity, you now need to bring the, the foot from the back of the stroke to the front of the stroke. So during that phase, you're going to be averaging about twice the speed of your forward motion, of your body's forward motion. So, and again, this is just an assumption, but I treated that as kind of a constant velocity. So I said, okay, if we're looking at someone who's doing roughly a two hour marathon, um, which is you know the fastest you would expect people to really be running, um, at least for the, uh, the Nike Vaporfly. But um, I treated that as, I think I came up with 5.8 meters per second as the average velocity. So I doubled that saying, okay, that's how fast your foot will be traveling through the air on the, the forward step. The area, um, I actually went and measured my own shoes. And then I realized when I was doing that, this is a lot closer than I want to get my face to my own <laughs> shoes for most, most cases. Um, but I, I found that it was about 30 centimeters long. So I've got a size 10 and a half foot, and it was about 10 centimeters wide at the widest point. So the frontal area, um, it could be looked at as 30 by 10 if your foot is vertical. Uh, but I assumed, okay, through the stroke, uh, you're probably around a 45 degree angle. So I multiplied by that, that by uh, 0.707, which is for anyone who's got some trig background, that's uh, root two, which is the... Um, uh, the 45 degree angle component. And I, I came up with the area that we have. So 0.02 meters squared is roughly what I, what I had for my foot area. The CD values is really where this starts to diverge or where the two parts of it start to diverge. So I treated the, uh, the regular foot as a pretty unaerodynamic shape. So the CD value is 1.15, which is similar to a cylinder in cross flow. The, the improved one, I said, okay, if we reduce drag by about 15 to 20%, um, that roughly puts us at 0.9 for a CD value. And this is not CDA, this is just CD. Um, so 
that was probably my biggest assumption in all of this. And there's, I'm like completely open for any follow-up questions or debate on whether or not this is a good assumption. But I said, okay, a 20% reduction in drag for the foot, that's a pretty big improvement, I think. So that was my assumption. When you start to put it through the, um, the equations for the amount of force, each foot would be feeling a peak of around two newtons of drag force. This is only experienced for half the running stroke, though. So you, you divide it by two um, because the other half of the time it's not moving, but then you multiply it by two because you've got two feet. <laughs> so, it, uh, yeah, it evens out. Yep. So at the, the, at the forward speed you're going, um, that works out to about 11.5 watts of peak aerodynamic drag for just your shoes. So that's not insignificant. I was actually pretty surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for any of you who are um, run with power, run with stride, and have some appreciation of what running power looks like now, that's not to say that that stride exactly captures mechanical power. There's kind of that big debate of what exactly it is capturing. It's it's tend to it's it it's thought to correlate quite well, uh, and has been shown to correlate quite well with metabolic uh, demands with uh, with internal power, if you like. Um, so it's not exactly analogous. So it's not exa- you know you can't say with uh, a high degree of certainty that um, you can say if you're you know threshold if you're running ftp and stride is 350 watts this is 11 of those watts in which case it's it's certainly not insignificant but it gives you an idea of of uh, of some kind of power demands and for our cycling uh, listeners which is probably most of you you can also appreciate that 11 11 watts is is not nothing and if if somebody said that uh, you know you could somehow save 11 watts you probably would go out of your way to do that i would be quite happy to save 11 watts mm-hmm. so um, so, yeah, when I saw this number, I was thinking, oh, this actually is significant. This could be a, a potentially large gain. Um, so this was, again, for the, the base uh, shoe, the, the non-aerodynamic shoe. And when I put in the numbers for the, the 15% drag reduction, it ended up being about 8.9 watts. Um, so we've got a, a wattage savings, like I'm rounding them a little bit, but it, it ended up being very close to 5 watts difference. So the, the difference between the two shoes, 5 watts, if we're taking kind of a baseline power, I assume 320 watts is kind of what they would average um, metabolically, uh, or at least mechanically, um, during the run. But again, like you pointed out, Michael, there's a lot of, a lot of interpretation there um, and a lot of potential room for error. But this is just kind of a ballpark number of knowing what an athlete might be able to produce. And it was a way to determine what kind of speed up they'd be able to maintain with that that five watt gain. So because of how speed scales with drag, um, it's basically the cube of the the speed difference. And that works out to a whopping half a percent gain in speed, which when you hear something like that, it sounds like, oh, big deal, half a percent. But when the marathon world record is being shaved by 10 seconds here, 20 seconds there, um, all of a sudden, oh, half a percent is pretty pretty substantial for that. For sure. Um, yeah, so the rest of it I just kind of based on, okay, if you're doing a 210 marathon, you know, just a nice easy run there. <laughs> uh, 210 marathon, um, which is a pretty, I would say a reasonable competitive time. It's not a world record setting time, but depending on the course, it can be, um, it can be a winning time. And 
the uh, the speed increase I got or the time increase or reduction I got was around 39 seconds wow. for having a more aerodynamic shoe. So almost a minute savings. Um, for me, if I were to do two marathons within a minute, um, that would be remarkable repeatability. But for <laughs> these guys who are doing, who are fighting for those just every little second, um, I, I was really surprised to see that this could be could be a game changer for people. So that's super cool. Um, a couple of caveats that I want to, that Andrew pointed out in his explanation, but uh, that I want to really, you know, uh, really get our listeners to appreciate is that this isn't a hard number. This is kind of a, a, a high level calculation. And the, the key component is what Andrew said when he first started talking about um, how he did the calculation or why he did it this way, not the CFD, is that he w- he wanted to get a sense of the the order of magnitude, right? So mm-hmm. I'm guessing, Andrew, if you came up with a number of, you know, instead of 39 seconds of 0.39 seconds, you would have just said there is no difference because that's complete exactly. nonsense. Yeah. And if you came up with like, you know, 390 seconds, you would be, you'd be, you'd be double checking your math, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, that is the first thing I would do. Yeah. Assume that you make a mistake when you see a result like that. Right. But uh, 39 seconds is, is kind of in the, in the ballpark where, as you said, it's not, you know, it might not break, make or break somebody who's running a four hour marathon or a 330 marathon, or even someone who's close to Boston qualifying because uh, of that really key relationship that Andrew pointed out about the, uh, the cubic relationship between velocity and uh, aero drag. Um, so the faster you go, the, the more this makes a difference. So just like, um, just like many other things, like in cycling, um, these aerodynamic uh, winds make more of a speed difference or wattage difference for the fastest athletes in the world. Uh, the Kipchogis mm-hmm. and, and his ilk. Um, so you may not, you know, you may not expect that kind of same wattage savings if you're running that four hour, three and a half hour, or even three hour marathon. But at the same time, you're out there for longer. So you're accumulating those, those smaller savings over a greater amount of time. Um, but yeah, the bottom line is it's, it's now at the point where, uh, I think it may be worth doing that CFD analysis just because it's a non-trivial, um, non-trivial savings in time. Thank you for volunteering me for that. <laughs> I said I didn't. Uh, I didn't uh, put a timeline on this, Andrew. I, uh, but I did tell Mike that we would get get him an answer, and uh, without doing the uh, the heavy CFD lifting of uh, of modeling shoes. Plus, we also don't have a four percent or a Vaporfly um, or next percent uh, shoe. So, if any of you guys want to donate one to science, uh, it's non destructive testing too. So you'll you know you'll get it back. But um, well. Let's uh, let's be let's not promise too much. If you happen to send in a size ten and a half that's unused, or, or, or um, a size eleven, I can't guarantee. Oh yeah, or a size eleven. Yeah, <laughs> can't guarantee you'll get it back. <laughs> at least, at least, maybe not entirely unworn or unraced in. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it would it would be actually quite interesting to take a look at that. Um, and the one of the challenges you run into with CFD is um, having a good base model. Is, is really key for getting a good analysis. So there's not a lot of CAD that exists for shoes. Um, it's largely uh, more of a fashion thing where you, you don't have that computer model. So taking a 3D scan of it would be the easiest way to get it, but um, it's not something you can just go out and find where, um, not that you can find CAD models for, for bikes or anything like that, but they do exist. The manufacturers have them and have access to them. So it's a, a little bit easier for them to test. Mm-hmm. But I suspect there hasn't been a lot of aerodynamic testing done 
on shoes in the past, except for maybe this, uh, the Nike project. And the other thing I'll say is that, you know, when you were describing your process and you described all of the assumptions that you made, like the, you know, the angle of attack of the shoe during the stride, um, and the, you know, the fact that the shoe is moving at twice the velocity of the runner that I think that, that, that one's pretty safe, but the kind of the, the orientation of the shoe in, in quote unquote in flight when it's, uh, when it's during the recovery phase and during the, uh, the, for, the forward, the swing forward phase of the stride, um, that obviously changes with, with, you know, hip, knee and ankle angles. And really the, if we were to go, the, if you went to the point to the trouble of doing a CFD analysis of it, you would almost have to do it dynamically. You would otherwise, mm-hmm. it doesn't make a ton of sense from an engineering perspective to get, you know, a high degree of of accuracy in one element in the you know the modeling element. Um, if you don't know what the orientation of the shoe is is at any given time, and I I'm willing to bet that there is quite a bit of you know, individual variation because there are so many different running strides out there um, that there would be, you know, differences between individuals in how their shoe meets the wind when they are in that recovery phase of their of their uh, stride. And maybe to take a, another bit of a breakdown and how I would approach this problem further, um, if I were presented with this problem where someone were saying, I need to know exactly how much drag is coming from this through most of the, the running gate, um, I would actually treat it as kind of a semi-stationary problem uh, where I would, I would take several different angles of the shoe and several different uh, wind speeds, or actually you can non-dimensionalize the, the aerodynamics a little bit. Um, but... You, I would take those individual values and create a solution that would be kind of a numerical model of the different results I had. So we could say at this portion in the gate, you know, for this amount of distance, it's at this velocity, and then use that to calculate the energy consumption over that portion, and then just add everything up. So it's mm, like okay. a numerical solution is basically breaking down a smooth curve and, and treating it as a whole bunch of sums. And uh, that's, that's the basis of how any numerical solution really works. And I would just treat that in this respect as opposed to doing like a full dynamic solution because the complexity of those is just through the roof. Like right. um, it, it can sometimes be a hundred or a thousand times as much computational time to get that simulation going as opposed to just a steady state one. So it's, it grows exponentially. That makes sense. And you're, you're giving me like horrible flashbacks of, of engineering mathematics. <laughs> and if we ever That's do this, part. Oh, no, thanks. If we ever do this, you're going to be the one doing it because I remember that my, uh, <laughs> my numerical methods, um, my, my mark in numerical methods was I think either a 50 or a 53 in, uh, in university. And it was only because I was friends with a TA. So let's leave it at that. You'll, you can do the, uh, you can do the uh, the engineering math on this one. All right, deal. So I think we probably put everyone completely to sleep, except for a few people who will except be for Mike Lynn, Hopefully, yes. It would be sad if you fell asleep during this explanation. Yeah, but uh, but that's that's engineering. Some people love it, and most people don't. <laughs> Fair point. So let's jump to um, the second thing that we wanted to talk about, and that is. Um, we have another aerodynamics one for you, but let's let's kind of you know split them up and uh, talk a little bit about um, training in the heat. Uh, we've done at least two quite 
thorough um, episodes on this, but you could probably do two dozen. At least Andrew and I could probably be okay with doing two dozen. Um, so I won't dwell on on kind of the details and, and all the other stuff that we covered. But I do want to mention one important element um, about training in the heat. And this came up from a question in a recreational run group that I coach the uh, Tribe Performance Race Team in uh, that's local to Toronto. And uh, we were talking about uh, doing uh, tough workouts and we're, we're entering a bit of a, a race prep phase for a virtual race, of course. Thank you, COVID. Um, and and it was a, it's a virtual half marathon where there's obviously a need to run at a speed that is um, well above easy, um, but below threshold. So, you know, kind of what some people may call sub-threshold or tempo, depending how fast you are and depending on how you define your terms. But regardless, it's a speed that, that requires some effort to maintain. And it's actually a tough speed to do any kind of... A, any kind of sustained duration in when it's hot, right? Because unlike very short, uh, sharp sprints, you know, sprint interval training, or even like, uh, let's say high intensity interval training, short workouts where you have recoveries, where you can very, you know, we, where you, the, the bouts of work are quite short and you have frequent recoveries and there's a good opportunity to, uh, take any number of steps that Andrew and I've talked about at length to, uh, bring your core temperature down, go slushies, um, <laughs> where you're, when you're doing sustained kind of fairly intensive running, it's, it's hard to do that. Right. That was, that was the point I was trying to make. And so the question was, um, what do you do if you're scheduled to do one of these tempo half marathon pace, let's say sessions, and it's very hot outside. Um, and that was an excellent question because it le- the, the answer to this question kind of, uh, ties ties into what our body does when it's hot. Um, and it's important to break down kind of the, the, the body systems into two chunks for this, for this explanation. And, uh, in, you know, the sports physiology world, they're called the kind of the central system, which is your cardio respiratory and circulatory, um, system and the uh, the peripheral system which is kind of your your muscles uh in this case the the things that make you go so one of the effects of uh operating in the heat is that there's a, a much higher central strain that is your heart and lungs and and uh, have to work harder to supply blood not only to the organs and to the working muscles but also much more of the blood goes to the skin surface for cooling which we've discussed at length in, in past episodes so that has the effect that of reducing the available blood flow to the working muscles, which is why it's, you know, which it's one of the reasons why you operate, you can't run as fast when it's hot um, as when it's less hot. So the effect of training in, in hot conditions and trying to do um, sustained, fairly intensive efforts is that you do put quite a bit of strain on the central system, all right? It gets an excellent workout, but you don't quite get to strain the peripheral system enough to get much of a benefit, in my opinion. And this is, feel free to disagree and send me, send me your notes. But this is how I feel about it, how I think about it. You're not getting the peripheral strain that you might be after when it's hot. And uh, this plays an important role, especially in recreational runners for whom sort of the, the kind of the, the physical quality of muscular endurance is a limiter. So being able to sustain the, this fairly intense effort for, you know, a duration that's anywhere between 
I don't think any of these folks are running faster than 90 minutes, but maybe right around 90 minutes to, you know, two hours, um, which would be kind of the, the bandwidth of this group. Uh, it's, that's, it's hard work to run fairly fast for 90 minutes to two hours. And uh, um, the often the limiting factor is muscular endurance and that ability to generate force over a prolonged period of time. And when it's hot, um, my... Uh, my thinking is that it's it's tough to get that kind of stimulus in a workout that's meant to stimulate that kind of adaptation. So that's a long way of me saying that when it's hot, it may be not the best time for you to do your tempo workouts. It, again, it depends on what the, the goal of the workout is. But if it is, you know, kind of race-specific preparation, uh, my advice would be to uh, to make some modifications. Because the classic modification of, uh, of running when it's hot is just to slow your intensity, which makes, or lower your intensity, slow your pace, which makes perfect sense because um, centrally from that, you know, cardiorespiratory perspective, you are probably hitting your... Your, your targeted intensity level, but your uh, your working muscles are not getting the workout that they need. So, if if at all possible, um, this was my answer to the to the question in the group. If at all possible, to schedule these sessions when it's cooler. So, be it early in the morning, later in the evening, or you know, if it's possible that one day is hotter, one day is cooler in the forecast. Trying to find it. On uh, trying to find do this on a cooler day, and of course, if you're stuck doing it on a warmer day, seeking shade is a big one because uh, thermal load from the sun is is quite high. Is definitely non-trivial, as Andrew and I've talked about. Um, so, doing what you can to to minimize that that at least external uh, thermal load, knowing that your internal thermal load is going to be quite high from doing this sustained, fairly high intensity activity. So in, can I take a breath now? <laughs> that was I, you were on a roll there. I didn't want to interrupt you. <laughs> um, so anecdotally, I've heard from talking to Cody Beals that uh, he's done plenty of hot races and he's done quite well in them before. But his comment is usually that his recovery time is much lower after a hot race because he's not actually putting that muscular or that uh, peripheral loading on uh, on his body. So he's. Like it, it's hard on the, the heat compensation, but um, the muscles aren't actually suffering that much for the the same RPE value. So um, I totally, yeah, yeah. So it was quite interesting. Mm-hmm. I think he's he's spot on. I mean, obviously that's his his uh, his observation. I've seen that myself with uh, again with myself and with uh, folks that I work with uh, people who who get completely crushed in in really hot races and oh yeah, that's sometimes aren't aren't very happy in, with their results um, and they're thinking that they're going to be you know uh, buried for for days. Then the next day they feel quite fresh, provided there's no kind of like medical heat stroke or anything which takes some time to recover from. Mm-hmm. The muscularly, yeah, hot races don't take don't beat you up nearly as much. In fact, they can be, if you are looking specifically for central adaptations for whatever reason, let's say, um, this is, and I, this is pure conjecture. Here's my like big disclaimer here. Um, here, this is the conjecture for how, uh, training in the heat may big, big capital may, um, have some positive effects for going to altitude is because it does provide a strain more on the central system than the peripheral system. And, and at altitude, it's a similar kind of load. It's it's your central, you know, your cardiorespiratory system is more heavily taxed than your peripheral system. So, um, yeah, there's le- there's definitely less muscular strain and less muscular damage after hard workouts or races in the heat. I think that's def- that's that's quite well supported. 
And I think that's a pretty good point you have as well about if you go past the limit, go past your red line, you can do some some damage uh, to your, your body if you increase your brain temperature above the kind of the safe working levels. And that's where you get into heat stroke and more serious things like that. So you, you definitely want to stop before then. But in that intermediate phase, you might not be able to push yourself quite as hard. Um, so, and that's actually your body's way of self-throttling. Um, so it's, it is built in as a mechanism to, to prevent you from doing that for that very reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually an important point too that you raise, Andrew. That it's not just—I I, I said the mechanism behind it was the, you know, the the lack of resources because there's more more of those kind of blood resources, fluid resources are being used for cooling. But yeah, you you may, you you bring up a really good point about the the throttling mechanism, whatever you want to, however you want to think about it, whether it's like the psychobiological model or the the central governor model, uh, one way or another, it's that RPE, that perceived level of effort, is going to be higher in the heat and that's going to reduce your ability or desire to to work harder mm-hmm. the last thing that uh that we'll touch on today was another listener question um this is actually from a couple of folks they've asked in in different ways for us to cover the importance of recovery uh that's because this is something that i've mentioned on a number of occasions and uh, I certainly talk to uh, the folks that I work with uh, quite a bit about. Um, and I'll start a, start out by saying that there is no, as far as I know, there's no really solid, you know, quantifiable way of, of measuring recovery. And one of the other things I'll say is that we are actively looking for somebody who is uh, an expert in the field to come on the show and talk to us. So if you know somebody or if you are that somebody, then please do send us a note because we'd love to have you or the individual you rec- recommend on the show to uh, to talk with some authority on this topic. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share what I know about it, um, which I think is is you know, useful, <laughs> I'd like to think. Um, but it's by no means kind of, uh, I, I, I am by no means an expert on, in the in the field. So with that hedge in place, uh, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> uh, the way that I'd like to think about recovery is, first of all, and this may be an obvious thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, um, training, the act of training, so the act of lifting weights or running or cycling or swimming or doing any kind of uh, kind of endurance or physical training is primarily breakdown right so what we're looking to do is apply a stress to the body um, both a physical and often a mental stress that then the body in a, in, a, in a perfect world can recover from and and absorb and in so doing become more fit for whatever it is you're asking it to do whether it's run a mile or you know or or snatch a barbell so um, for that to happen for that process of adaptation or supercompensation to happen it recovery is is critically important it's when we recover that we we become stronger or faster not when we run or or ride our bikes or swim that's when we become weaker right that's when we break down it's it's only after doing that and then resting recovering that we become stronger so the components of recovery that are incredibly important are sleep that's probably the number one um adequate hydration and nutrition of course are, are super important and they're 
you know, topics in their own rights. And we've had experts uh, covering nutrition and hydration on the show in the past. We haven't had a sleep expert, but uh, we probably ought to get one. Maybe this individual who's a recovery expert can talk about sleep. But sleep is, is of course, critically important because that's when your body does most of its repairing and, and adapting. Um, so those things in my practice are more important than the training. So making sure that the training doesn't compromise any of those other things. Uh, and there's lots of examples of how it can. So for instance, you know, one of the, um, one of the symptoms of, of doing too much training or not enough recovering is poor sleep quality. Sleep becomes compromised. And then, then it's a vicious cycle because by training even more, you're going to be probably compromising your sleep all the more. And then uh, recovery is, is degraded yet again. And from, from a personal standpoint there, um, just the, the act of racing, I find that I always sleep terribly after racing because it's this extreme form of overreaching, mm -hmm. uh, where I, I just have essentially overtrained my body and caused too much damage and then I can't sleep. And then usually there's travel involved the next day. So it makes it really hard to bounce back from races when you're under those conditions. Yeah, and there's also it's it's it is a it is a, a, a like a big acute hit of um, of training stress for sure. But also there is a lot of um, of uh, you know kind of go chemicals like cortisol is really high after after races, also after hard workouts, which um, which is one of the reasons where I am careful. I personally don't do this anymore, and I'm careful with folks that I work with. I ask them to experiment. Uh, in doing, let's say, uh, high intensity training in the evening, because I find that even though I am able to perform quite well in evening high intensity workouts, um, it, it compromises my sleep, and so that is a that is a net negative in my opinion. That even if you like crushed your VO two max track workout, um, if you can't sleep afterwards, then you you kind of just you know you, I don't want to say you wasted your time, but you're you're shortchanging yourself on the adaptation front, and that's um, that's because in order to work hard, we have certain certain hormones that that our bodies are flooded with in order to perform and those hormones are generally in opposition to the you know the the rest and digest state of our body where you know which is what you need to to get a, a good night's sleep and when you're racing andrew the perfect example you probably have the highest possible dose of of you know cortisol adrenaline probably coupled with a lot of caffeine um if you're one of those folks that that takes caffeine as a as an ergogenic aid which of course it is um it's like the perfect you know cocktail of of sleeplessness in your body how to completely upset your body all at once <laughs> well racing yeah i mean it's it's you know we we talked i love this conversation with uh, marco altini that we had a few episodes ago uh, well more than a few now where he was talking about heart rate variability and one of the things he said i've been saying it to all the folks i work with now is that we want homeostasis right we want to be normal we normal is a good state of being um and if you're training correctly and you're recovering correctly you're only tipping that homeostasis just a little bit you're just like just nudging it you never want to you know hit it with a hammer and, and and knock it out completely off kilter uh with a few exceptions you know there's some really cool effects of of big big volume training camps and things but your ability to recover needs to be needs to be in place well, in order to be able to again absorb and use that that massive training volume to uh to become faster rather than just to become more tired so one of the one of the ways that that and this was I heard this on another podcast that should that should be my catchphrase. <laughs> the, um, one of the uh, one of the ways that I like to conceptually think about this is you don't want to train 
you don't want to add more training, whether that's duration or intensity, you don't want to add more training to your life unless you can also add more recovery to your life. So, you know, if you can fit in a nap or you can sleep a little bit longer or you can clean up your nutrition, and that's assuming you're already at capacity, right? Like most of us, like for now, I mean, I definitely, I'm limited personally with the number of hours I have available to train right now because, you know, kids at home. So I have capacity. I'm actually sleeping quite well. So I probably have capacity to train more if I had the time to do it. But if you're already training quite a bit and you're kind of on that edge where you're, you really need, you feel like you need every couple of weeks or every three or four weeks, you really feel like you need a bit of a recovery week and you take it and you feel okay. It would be hard to add more training stress to that because Yes, your body's adapting and slowly, slowly, slowly getting better. But unless you can also add some extra recovery, so again, if it's a nap or a little bit more sleep, or maybe there's an opportunity to clean up nutrition or to give up alcohol or to do something that makes recovery better, and I know that's a very kind of soft, squishy way of putting it, um, adding more training load on top of where you are if you're already close to maximum, then then you're then that's that's a tough uh, that's a tough sell. It's hard to do that. So that's that's another way that I try to think about recovery is I, I will use my athlete's ability to recover as kind of like an upper limit on how much training I can ask them to do, even if they have it, even if they have the time available to do it. And now might actually be quite an interesting time for people, because I think there's there's quite a few who are in a similar situation to you where now they've got the kids at home, they have uh, their schedules upset, you know, work is now stretching because you can't focus on it during the normal work hours. So it stretches out an hour or two later, yep. which compresses your available um, workout times. But there are other people, um, and I fall more into this category where I don't have kids and I don't have a commute anymore. And it makes it easy to get a workout in at lunch or to get a workout in directly after work. Mm -hmm. And I have more time to recover as a result. And I have more time to do other things. So it's, you know, the laundry doesn't get in the way of the workout, that kind of thing. Sure. And I think there's an opportunity for some people to, while they're kind of isolated at home, um, to improve their fitness quite a bit. Um, so it, it does give you an opportunity. And I've been seeing that with my own training that I, I feel like I have made some improvements recently as well. That's an excellent point, Andrew, and you're, you're spot on. I think what's really important for people to, to take away is that yes, you can improve your fitness while you're stuck at home, especially if you don't, if you have, you know, if you're, if the things that require your time are now fewer than they used to be, and for some of us, they are going to be fewer. For some of us, they're going to be more of those things, obviously. But it's important to understand that you will, you do need to take more time to recover. So you still, you can't just add training. If you were already training a lot before, you can't just add training. You also have to add some kind of recovery activity, right? So there's there there's a whole number of things that you could be doing. And if you have the time available, you know, taking a nap is a prime example. Um, maybe trying to sleep a little bit longer, um, maybe eating a little bit better, which is also easier when you're stuck at home and perhaps eating out less. I know that's something that happened with our family and probably happening with a lot of a lot of families who who don't have the option of eating out anymore or not as easily. So uh, better nutrition through through home cooking, I think is is another win. So you're absolutely right. There's an opportunity there, but it's it's um, it does it comes with some uh, some potential risks of of overcooking it if you are not then taking care of, of your recovery at the same time. Yeah, so I guess ultimately it, it comes down to balance. 
which most things do. Yeah, exactly. And that balance needs to be maintained. So if you're increasing, you know, if you're increasing the one side of the scale of training, you got to be able to balance it out with, uh, with better recovery. That's an excellent point. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, this was uh, quite an interesting chat. Some good questions that we had from, from our listeners. So I always love hearing those come in. Yeah, thank you for for those of you who've asked those questions. And uh, like I said, with this recovery one, um, I I have my um, you know my basis for making my conclusions and making my recommendations. But I am not an expert in the field. And if you are, let us know. Get in touch. We'd love to talk to you. All right. Well, was there anything else you wanted to add to this episode or do you think this is a good place to wrap it up? I think this is good. Um, we will have uh, a couple more guests in the next couple, in the next weeks uh, who I'm very excited about and uh, I'm not going to tell you who they are yet. Uh, but some, <laughs> some pretty interesting conversations that we've got tentatively scheduled for the next couple of weeks. So uh, do continue to tune in. Um, do continue to ask your questions. If you like the show, rate or review us, rate and review us. I don't know why I always say or <laughs> rate and review us on your <laughs> preferred, I, uh, I, too many words, on your preferred podcast app. And uh, if you really like us, then consider supporting the show. We have a link in the show notes to uh, Supercast, which is our, uh, our membership platform where you get to ask questions in a very streamlined way and you get to financially help us make the show. So that would be awesome as well. Absolutely. We really appreciate the support from both the listeners and the supporters. Yeah. And uh, some of you, some of our supporters have asked us to uh, think about having endurance innovation swag Ooh. and uh, I can tell you that that is in the works. So for, for those of you who are interested in uh, sporting the Chain Brain logo, which I'm a huge fan of, but I'm biased. Um, very soon you'll have the opportunity to do so. Yeah, I think it's something that, uh, well, I mean, if people are interested, we might have to try it out first and make sure that it, uh, you know, all the, the swag looks good and functions properly. Yes, yes. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we'll talk to you in a week.